Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. This first series mainly features talks from this year's London Lectures on the theme of Expanding Horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening its scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world, new themes and novel methods. Today, we're going to be talking about anger and shame, hopefully without making you angry or us feeling shame. These are problematic emotions, but to what extent are they natural, socially determined or under our control? Our guest, Owen Flanagan, is going to help us answer these questions and more. Owen is the James B. Duke University Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Neurobiology at Duke University. Owen is the author of numerous books on a range of subjects, The Bodhisattva's Brain, Buddhism Naturalised, The Geography of Morals, and more recently, How to Do Things with Emotions, Anger and Shame Across Cultures. After Owen's talk, we'll be launching into a discussion which featured questions from our live online audience. Before we do that, here's Owen Flanagan on the ethics of anger and shame and lessons from other cultures. So the particular problem that I'm worried about and I'm going to talk about today does connect up with my longstanding interest in the nature of human beings, the nature of consciousness, the nature of mind. And you'll see elements of all these things. But I think the talk um, really does, as I say, relate to a certain way that I've come to think about the emotional ecology or the emotional economy of the 21st century. And I've been very worried for the last two decades, and I've started to talk to students, family, colleagues um, about my observation. What's the observation? My observation is that we've never lived, or I've never lived, in angrier times. I've lived in fraud and bloody times before. I was 13 in September of 1963. Four innocent black girls were killed by a bomb at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Two months later, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. I was 15 in 1965 when Malcolm X was killed, 18 in 1968 when Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy were assassinated. 1967 was the summer of love in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and also the summer of 159 race riots in Watts in L.A., Detroit, Michigan, Newark, New Jersey. On May 4, 1970, one month before I graduated from college, 28 members of the Ohio National Guard fired 67 rounds in 13 seconds at anti-war protesters at Kent State University, killing four students, injuring nine others, paralyzing one for life. I was a young man throughout the 70s, which many say, and I agree, were transformative times. The 60s and 70s were a time of passionate causes, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. The Stonewall Uprising in Greenwich Village was for gay rights was in 1969. And also ending the unjust war in Southeast Asia, which we discovered had extended into Laos and Cambodia and was no longer just the Vietnam War. There was anger and there was blood. But one sensed at that time 
that both were in the service of hope. Our times seem angrier than that time, but also mostly absent high hopes and ideals. Aimless anger, non-ameliorative anger. Politics is especially a zone where the communal spirit, patient listening, and public reasoning of the New England town meeting is a quaint memory, replaced by politics as the expression and performance of resentment and disgust. I started to wonder how we could turn down the temperature on anger on both the political left and the political right as a way of making hope or making room for idealism, hope, and solidarity. But I was met again and again with people on all sides who explained that the anger I was seeing was rational and normal. I found myself explaining that it might be statistically normal around here and at the moment, but it wasn't statistically normal over the earth and over time. And it wasn't normatively normal. It wasn't good. I found myself going to sources outside my own tradition for examples of philosophers or saints or exemplars or whole traditions that offered arguments for being against being as angry as we were, even in the service of noble ends. It suits my view, although it makes me sad, that Bob Woodward, a famous American journalist, entitled his latest book, Rage. Rage names both President Trump's character in modus operandi and the state, current state of American social psychology. At the same time I was becoming convinced that we should turn the temperature down on anger, I worried that we, mainly my fellow Americans, were emotionally and morally off kilter in another way that I could only describe as a kind of shamelessness. There were social rules that in previous generations would have been filled by people of good character that were not filled by people of good character. Trump was exhibit or is exhibit number one. He represents but did not remotely create a new type, a type that shamelessly rejects the commitment to the true and the good, a type that makes fun of people who care about facts, a type that uses words like good and bad, fair and unfair, but no longer in any recognizable moral sense. It is not uncommon for people in good faith to disagree about what is true exactly and what is good exactly. But we are suddenly in an age where people who function as role models don't care about the true and the good at all. So my thought was that it would be good to turn up the dial on shame and not to mistake moral and epistemic recklessness for a kind of refreshing unconventionality or the victory of some kind of anti of healthy anti-elitism. It is neither. It is a kind of shameless nihilism that serves the interests of rapacious egomaniacs. Minimally, it would be good to reinstate norms of civic life that require commitment to truth-seeking and to respectful interaction rather than summary dismissals of fellow human beings as deplorables or stupid or unworthy or people of the wrong race, sex, gender, sexual preference, or country of origin. If my diagnosis of our predicament is on the right track, then it calls for recalibrating our emotions, specifically doing something different with the emotions of anger and shame. Emotions express values, 
they abide norms, and they figure essentially in virtues and vice. In trying to argue, often only to myself, about the best forms for anger and shame to take, I found myself thinking once again about using resources from cultural psychology, anthropology, and cross-cultural philosophy. Sometimes when one is in a rut, one needs to be creative finding one's way out. Imaginative exercises where one is encouraged to think outside the box, as we say, can give us permissions, information, and tools to explore previously unexplored, unfamiliar, often unknown possibility spaces. Parochial assumptions about one's realistic options can be challenged. So let me talk first, and most of the rest of my talk will be about anger. Uh, I'll spend a shorter amount of time on shame. And of course, this is an the whole talk is really an invitation to reflect on, think about our own, your own, our own collective or our own individual problems with these emotions. The way of inviting you in to think about, and this is a true story, it was pivotal in my own thinking about the variation, the huge cultural variation, how people do anger. So here's a true story that was what was pivotal to my own exposure to alternative ways of doing anger. In March 2000, I visited Dharamsala, India for four days of meetings with the $14 Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, and some fellow Buddhists and a group of Western scientists to discuss the topic of destructive emotions and how to overcome them. There were five or six of us, I think, uh, altogether, psychologists, neuroscientists, and myself. There was much uh, to learn in these discussions in the Dalai Lama's residences. Here's one unforgettable one. It became clear after a day or so of talks that Tibetan Buddhists of the Dalai Lama's uh, lineage, but also many Buddhists in general, there are many lineages, just like there are many Christian or Muslim or Jewish uh, varieties and sects, it became clear that Tibetan Buddhists believe that anger, resentment, and their sweet are categorically bad, always unwarranted, wrong, as they are inclined to say. We have many norms of appropriate anger, such as don't get too angry, or so angry as we sometimes say, and wrath is a deadly sin. But we do not think that one should never get angry, that anger is always wrong. For us, the right kind of anger reveals that one sees and cares about something of value. Everyday, not so warranted anger shows that one is normal. Minimally, we expect and tolerate a certain amount of it. But there is this kicker, even more mind-boggling. These Buddhists also believe that, one, that anger could be eliminated in humans, in mortals that there are practices that actually work so that it is possible to not experience anger, practices that can extirpate anger, cleanse the soul of tendencies to anger. I got that there are practices and rules of decorum, counting to 10, sublimation, or stuffing it, norms of apt anger that keep us from expressing anger and work to contain it. But not experiencing anger at all seemed unnatural, weird, not human. Again, self-work to keep from getting pissy over small frustrations makes good sense and is possible. But except for a rare saintly bird of maximally human temperament, not experiencing anger at the cosmos or the gods for the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and especially at evil people for their awfulness, seemed close to psychologically impossible. 
Then there is the fact that most people I know were raised to think it okay, permissible, possibly sometimes required, to feel and express outrage. Righteous anger is something we ought sometimes to experience and express, something that certain people or states of affairs deserve. So I found myself posing this thought experiment to the Dalai Lama. Imagine that one were to find oneself in a public space, a park, a movie theater, where one realizes that one is seated next to Hitler, or Pol Pot, or Stalin, or Mao, early in the execution of the genocides they actually perpetrated. We, I said, my people, think it would be appropriate first to feel moral anger, and second, that it would be okay, possibly required, to kill them, supposing one had the means. What about you, Tibetan Buddhists, I asked. The Dalai Lama turned to consult the high lamas who were normally seated behind him like a lion's pride in his living room. And after a few minutes of whispered conversation in Tibetan with his team, he turned back to our group and explained that one should kill Hitler, actually with some swashbuckling ceremonial fanfare in a way to mix cultural practices, a samurai warrior might. He said you should kill him. It is stopping a bad, a very bad karmic causal chain. So yes, kill him, but don't be angry. What could this mean? How did it make sense to think of one human being killing another, being motivated to kill another human being without feeling, without activating the suite of reactive attitudes such as anger, resentment? This example is my sort of the beginning of my invitation. I don't intend to argue that we should change our practices in the Tibetan Buddhist direction, but it was my introduction to the possibility that other cultures have socialized their own charges differently. There are alternative ways to think about and reflect on and think contrastively about how we do the emotions such as anger. Obviously, those of you who know about Buddhism will know that the Buddhist attitude in such circumstances is that one can, in fact, save one, a person from their own suffering, self-caused suffering, if one approaches them with compassion and love, and that, in fact, might, in certain cases, involve having the anger turn to something like, actually, in this case, stopping the bad karma chain by killing the person out of love and compassion. In any case, that's just the sort of opening thought experiment to invite you to think carefully about things. Now, as a philosopher, you may know that we philosophers are sometimes told, or Alfred North Whitehead said early in the 20th century, He said, the safest generalization to make about Western philosophy is that it's but a series of footnotes to Plato. So one idea, and of course this is the whole series is devoted to this idea, is that we ought to be recognizing the bounty of philosophical views out there that come from other traditions and using them to help us sometimes think our ways out of my own, our own problems. And as you know, I've said it very clearly, I think that one of our problems now is that we are inordinately angry, the anger is not productive, and we don't see our way out. This is a a wonderful quote where my dear friend, Alistair McIntyre, reflects. This was at uh, his 80th birthday party in Dublin. It was held in Dublin. I was there. It was a wonderful uh, experience. 
And this is a, from a paper that Alistair McIntyre gave then called On Having Survived the Academic Moral Philosophy of the 20th Century. I just ask you to think about this. Um, he suggests that the study of moral philosophy has been divorced from the study of morality. I think what he has in mind there is that we're too devoted to solving things like trolley problems, abstract problems about emergencies, and we don't think enough about the human experience. And he points out in the quote, we wouldn't expect someone to do philosophy of law without having uh, studied the law, but we actually don't even think of philosophers who are thinking about the problems of ethics in multicultural worlds as needing to become aware of the diversity of human traditions, human religions, and so on that we could learn about from anthropology, cultural psychology, and so on and so forth. I love the quote from McIntyre to the effect that unless we become aware sometimes of other traditions, like in the invitation that I gave you, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we might not be aware of the varieties of moral possibility all the different ways of being human that are, um, some, some of them are actualized around us in cities like London, in many modern uh, cities, and that without these resources, we are, as he says, imprisoned by our own upbringing. And that's a very provocative uh, thought. So let me go on and talk about some of the ways that we might think about anger, and then some of the ways we might help ourselves to the examples of other cultures and thinking about how to do anger. So I invite you first to uh, just think about anger. I think this is a plausible way to think about anger. There are three different spheres of life. You might, uh, all of us, I think, are familiar with anger. First, there's the just the personal sphere, the uh, part of life in which we get angry with our loved ones, our children, our friends, family. And um, this is a zone of life, I think, which everybody is familiar with. We all enact anger and are the objects of anger sometimes. I will just make this suggestion to think about. I often ask audiences when I talk about anger and when I do, when I talk about it with my students, I say, just think for a second, pause and think for a second about all the times in your life that you've gotten angry at loved ones or family members. Think about these two questions. What's your batting average in terms of getting what you wanted out of that interaction. So when you're demanding that someone else comply to your will or conform to your will or do the chore that they were supposed to do, how often are you instrumentally, as it were, or practically successful in getting what you want? And the second question to ask at the same time is what's your batting average on how you come out of the situation feeling about your own sort of ethical character? Do you come out thinking that you behaved well? Do you think you said too much? Do you think that you were cruel? And if you think you weren't cruel, that you didn't say too much, and you didn't say hurtful things, then that would be a check by you think you came out of it, as it were, uh, with a, a moral B, good enough. What I found when I asked people about this is that students, uh, at least, think that they don't have much of a success rate in anger in the personal sphere. They think that actually they lose both practically, they don't get what they want very often, and secondly, they don't feel good about themselves coming out of it. Now, that's a sign that something's gone wrong if our personal anger is neither practically successful or makes us feel good about ourselves morally. Now, with respect to the middle sphere, what I have in mind there is simply the sphere of life in which you're interacting with restaurant uh, workers, uh, cafe workers. Uh, talking on the phone to your cable TV company, dealing with bureaucracies in America about health care costs and so on and so forth. 
uh, that would be the middle sphere of life. Uh, the third sphere is the political sphere, uh, where uh, things like um, Black Lives Matter, Brexit, and things like this. So those are the three spheres of anger. It's sometimes useful just to divide them into the personal, the middle realm, and the political. As far as types of anger, I, again, I ask you to reflect on these different types of anger. So one type of anger that I think may be familiar to most of us is what uh, we can call payback or vengeful anger. Someone hurt you, they showed contempt or spite, or they didn't do their chores, or they inconvenienced you, or they were an obstacle to you, and immediately you try to zap them back uh, with anger. A different kind of anger, which I think ha- traces its history to the 19, late 1960s, I sort of think of primal scream therapy, is what I call pain-passing anger. This comes out of a particular therapeutic tradition, which a very good psychologist, Carol Tarvis, calls the ventilationist view. The idea is that there are certain emotions which are hard. So a person is hurting, she's depressed, she's disappointed, she's sad, she's angry, and she lets the emotion out. In pain-passing anger, the other person didn't hurt you at all. You just strike out because they are in the vicinity and you reveal your anger, annoyance at the state of yourself or the world. But another person is the recipient of this completely undeserved anger. Another kind of anger, but I'm not fussing about today, instrumental anger, uh, a sergeant in the military who yells at his troops to get their attention. He's not really angry. That's instrumental anger. I'm not fussing about that. And then finally, there's righteous anger, Black Lives Matter anger, anger about Brexit anger, uh, masking anger, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, And these have all different spheres. And I I think, just to lay my view out, I'm worried a lot. I think that pain-passing and vengeful anger are a problem and that pain-passing anger is a problem, and that, we, that morally we'd be much better if we adjusted our practices with respect to these kinds of anger. Righteous anger, I think, is entirely appropriate when the cause is righteous. As I say, the, the, this talk is an invitation for you to think with me about the possibility space for how we could do the emotions differently. And as I said, uh, I said from the very beginning, Thinking about how other cultures and traditions have, th- have thought about the emotions and how to regulate them, how to teach the children how to behave emotionally. So with respect specifically to anger, there are two great world traditions, Stoicism and Buddhism, which, as I've already said about the Buddhism case, judge anger to be the most destructive emotion. You might think, well, uh, Stoicism is not going to be a very good place to go because there are no Stoics. But actually, there are Stoics around. It's having a revival. But anyway, um, but both the Stoics and the Buddhists, their idea was that lots of kinds of anger, and I would say especially, for example, payback and pain-passing anger that I spoke about um, previously, they are expressions of ego. And ego isn't always bad. Of course, we need to uh, assert ourselves and be ourselves. But we also uh, can be prone to thinking that the universe ought to comply with our desires and instructions, uh, but it's just not going to do that. So the first point is just simply that there are other traditions which judge anger to be a very destructive emotion and then train young people to uh, learn uh, principles by which they either sublimate or metabolize or 
come to understand that their emotions are under their control and that they should do them differently. What we find uh, cross-culturally is that if you ask people from South Asia uh, why anger is bad, they'll tell you that it separates people, that it causes rifts between people. If you ask Americans, they'll tell you it's bad because uh, she makes me so angry, it causes my blood pressure to go up, things like that. They'll tell you physical effects that other people cause them in making them angry. For Americans, anger is associated with yelling, shouting, and hitting. But among Belgians, it's associated with ignoring and withdrawing. Very similar among Japanese Uh, Japanese people say that they're disposed to leave a room when another person is angry. As far as a road rage, Americans and Australians actually experience and enact a lot of road rage. Japanese under similar traffic conditions do not experience road rage. Again, these are just invitations to realize how culturally malleable these things are. When children behave in ways that uh, respond angrily to parents' demands, German mothers and American mothers escalate anger. Japanese mothers respond with disappointment and sadness. There's lots of variation in how people do anger. And if we thought that pain-passing anger and ventilating anger uh, were wrong, there are examples from other cultures about what we might do. Okay. That ends my invitation to think about anger. I want to now say in closing, more briefly, a few things about shame. I also think we live in time in shameless times. I earlier mentioned uh, the former president of the United States, uh, number 45, as we like to call him, and try not to say his name all the time. But this is a person who was shameless about disregard for the truth and for basic principles of decorum and respect for uh, his fellow human beings. Now, I don't want to, in my brief remarks, I don't want to defend humiliating shaming. Those are terrible things. It just hurts another human being. There's no higher good or higher effect. But what I'm interested in about shame is that actually shame has a bad rap in America and I believe also in Europe. The bad rap goes like this. Shame's an ugly and worthless emotion. Shame involves, unlike guilt, involves feeling bad about your entire self. It just is a kind of social embarrassment and therefore it's superficial. And it leads to problems like furious, humiliated rage, addiction, criminality, eating disorders, juvenile delinquency in schools. Now, I've read the anthropology and the cultural psychology of shame and no place in the world does it have these effects? Uh, So one problem, although I'm not going to go into it, I discuss it at length in my um, book, is that the rap against shame is actually, in Western psychology, comes from something closer to self-loathing, which is definitely a bad thing to have, where a person thinks that she is a failure, a total failure as a human being. Shame doesn't have to have that quality at all, Shame is, I think, a mature sense of shame is good equipment to have in terms of being a human being who is responsive to reasonable social demands made in a reasonable social contract. So my idea here is that shame has an undeserved bad rap, 
and that there is something called a mature, a mature sense of shame, which inclines a person to make amends for shameful actions. Now, you might say, well, Boris Johnson did make amends for shameful actions when he apologized for attending the uh, BYOB party at Downing Street. But one, of course, also wants a mature sense of shame such that one would not do certain shameful things in advance. I think this is a huge problem in politics in general, uh, because we expect out of politicians that they be role models, that they work for the common good, and that they hold themselves to high standards because of being role models. A mature sense of shame, as I think about it, would incline one to self-cultivate. If one shows, it finds that oneself is uh, doing uh, politically corrupt actions or inclined to be motivated by power rather than public service, then I think that would be, in normal situations, an opportunity to self-cultivate. Things like self-cultivation are part of the sense of uh, shame that is, I think, well uh, respected in other cultures. Now, many people will uh, distinguish between shame and guilt. It turns out that in psychology experiments, uh, at least, again, North Americans think shame is bad and guilt is okay, but uh, they actually uh, use them both in very, very similar ways. I, I won't be able to go into this sufficiently, and I'm getting towards the end, but I do think one reason that we in the West have come to respect guilt ra- over shame insofar as they are different, the, uh, the view typically is that guilt is a feeling bad about actions, whereas shame is a feeling bad about not your whole self, I insist. It's a feeling bad about some disposition you have, temptation that you are responding to, possibly a character trait you have, and you try to fix it. Guilt involves a system in which you, for example, in the practices of the, of the tradition, Roman Catholic tradition I was brought up with, one confesses one's bad actions. The guilt system is very much associated with a long tradition in the Abrahamic tradition. You have a conscience. The conscience internalizes God, the judge, who will reward or punish you. And God, in fact, is somewhat angry, at least to a point. And God will punish you um, if you violate the moral law. Now, the question is, well, what's going to serve us to keep on the moral straight and narrow in a world in which they're increasingly the most common thing now answer on religious affiliation questions is nuns, and that is none of the above. I'm not a member of any tradition. Atheists and agnostics, for example, are a growing population. Well, I suggest it is what the rest of the world uses. It's a sense of shame. And a sense of shame is not, as it were, vertical, where God imposes a conscience, imposes a guilt system, uh, gets you to conform, But a sense of shame is very much suitable for people who have realized that the foundations of morality are inherently social, that they involve doing what, in some sense, we collectively as humans over world historical time have developed as the set of norms by which we should abide. One thing we could do is develop uh, greater respect for the possibilities for a sense of shame as a social guide to public morality. For example, the Confucian tradition is a locus of tremendously valuable thinking about shame, 
And there's nothing in the Confucian tradition which ha- shows that they think of shame as taking a whole human being as the subject or object of shame. Shame is just about particular actions and traits of character. In closing, and to begin the discussion, I just want to say this. What I've tried to do today is sort of invite you to think about the possibility of solving certain types of problems which I think are affecting our social psychology right now and the moral quality of our life by thinking about varieties, as McIntyre calls them, varieties of moral possibility, but there are also varieties of psychological possibility. One way to help ourselves think about how to do anger and shame differently, if we were inclined to do, is to reflect on how other cultures, sometimes other nation states, as in the case of differences between, say, German, American, Belgian, uh, Japanese anger that I uh, discussed briefly earlier, and there's much other, lots of other anthropology to talk about, but using other cultures as ways of thinking about these other traditions. And I close with this wonderful quote from John Stuart Mill. In 1848, Mill and his uh, Principles of Political Economy said this, talking about interactions among countries. But the economical advantages of commerce are surpassed in importance by its effects, which are intellectual and moral. It is hardly possible to overrate the value in the present low state of human improvement of placing human beings in contact with persons dissimilar to themselves and with modes of thought and action unlike those with which they are familiar. And now for emphasis, it is indispensable to be perpetually comparing their own notions and customs with experience and example of persons in different circumstances from themselves. And there is no nation which does not need to borrow from others not merely particular acts or practices, but essential points of character in which its own type is inferior. I just wanted to ask you something about shame, um, I mean, because you were talking about how shame is kind of a social emotion, really. It, it, it's something that reflects the, the essential truth that morality is, is, is social. There's one aspect of shame in, in a lot of East Asian cultures which I think is interesting and people sometimes find peculiar, and that's the extent to which shame is often sort of taken on collectively. And the mystery of that is that it seems to be taken on where the people who feel the shame don't obviously, don't clearly have any responsibility for what the shame is about. I'll give a couple of examples, actually. One was, there was, you may remember, a few years back, a sinking of a a ferry in Korea. And there was this sort of tremendous sort of public sort of debate about how in its race for economic development, somehow there's a feeling the country hadn't kept up in terms of protecting its citizens, and often reported as collective shame. And another perhaps even more striking example for Americans was there was a college shooting a few years back in which a Korean-American, I think, was the shooter there. And again, there was this uh, amazing kind of sense of shame in the Korean community. And I think the Korean ambassador actually um, fasted a day for every victim that was killed. How can you help us to make sense of that? How can it make sense to feel shame for something that you didn't do, actually? It was just something that some people in your community did in some way. 
that's a fantastic question. It takes us to a, I think a a topic that is a a very interesting related topic about the set of phenomena we might distinguish between sort of individualism about ethical actions and collectivism about ethical actions. So you know, you know, uh, there are there is some work which uh, by Hazel Marcus, for example, psychologist at um, Stanford. Uh, with her, uh, with Kitayama, wrote a paper back in uh, maybe 20 years ago or so about differences in cultural attitudes in general about whether one thinks of the unit of both action and reaction, like who's responsible, com- in completely individualistic terms or in collectivist terms. So I love these kind of examples, Julian, and and I re- I do remember very well the first example that you talked about, the uh, ferry case where the a large number of school children uh, went on a ferry and various people afterwards, they died in uh, over, there were too many people on the ferry. And as I recall, people like the high school principal or the vice principal uh, committed suicide. And there were several other casualties who weren't directly involved in, as it were, the event. I think really this kind of thing, and it is a feature of shame, does vary between how collectivist cultures think about things and the way individualistic cultures think about things. So you're absolutely right about that. I would also point out, interestingly enough, that pride, which in some ways is a, is one of the contrast of cases to shame, works this way also. So there was a, a, a wonderful uh, TV show I saw years ago where it was a uh, interview with uh, the principal of the best school in Manhattan. And it turned out the best school, elementary school in Manhattan, was in Chinatown. Most of the children in the school were Chinese restaurant workers' children, and they scored the best in math in the state and the third best in English. And they were interviewing the teacher, who was a, a Chinese-American woman, and all the Americans wanted to kept asking her, you must be so proud of yourself for running the best school, and so on and so forth. And she kept saying, uh, we're, uh, we're proud that we uh, did this together, that we made this school happen. It was clearly a very different attitude about the locus or the, the recipients of either praise or blame with respect to morality. So I think that's a very, you, you bring out a very, very important aspect. It is actually interesting because although some of these examples seem strange to, to a Westerner, in other ways, they should be familiar. And I think there's a weird asymmetry in that it's actually not difficult to get Westerners to find examples where they feel pride in something that had nothing to do with them. <laughs> it's just something that happened in their country, in their culture. But they don't exactly. take the other side of that, which is the shame. So I think we're kind of selectively collectivist, if you like. So we'll bask in the glow of the good things our culture has done, but we're not going to feel any shame for the bad things it's done, which is a interesting one. A um, couple of questions are around ideas of responsibility in one way or another. And we've got one here from Yuan Dong, who, who's asking whether you think it's appropriate to assign moral blame to people who do payback anger or pain passing anger. So these are things you say are not appropriate. Um, is, is moral blame appropriate there? So the two kinds of pain is you that's coming up in this question, which I appreciate, the two kinds that I think are, are worrisome and that there's too much of in the world uh, is the kind where someone hurts me and I want to hurt them right back. I'm, I'm as familiar as anyone with these kinds of reactions. Uh, and then there's the one that I'm personally less familiar with, which is what I call this ventilationist or 
pain passing where you just, uh, if you feel bad, then the rest of the world is going to know somehow because you're going to uh, be unpleasant or pass pain to other people. Um, I would always take things like this on case by case uh, basis. You know, I'm not sure that I think personally that there's much added to calling something morally bad as it just opposed to bad. I think it's unwarranted. It doesn't usually instrumentally pay off and you might not feel morally good about yourself. Um, uh, but in many cases where people do strike out at other people, um, we have psychological explanations for this. But my general thought is we should at least make invitations, call upon ourselves to get to do these things better, given that they don't usually promote what's good. They don't get the right reaction out of another person. They hurt them. Um, and uh, uh, so in that sense, um, they're, they're not for the best, shall I put it that way. Well, there's another question actually which relate, relates to, again, the issues of responsibility. The, the question is about something specific, but I think there's a broader point here. You talk about the Dalai, this is Mashley Dixon. The Dalai yeah. Lama's advice to kill Hitler but don't be angry seems to depend on voluntarism of some kind. I mean, these terms can be used in slightly different ways, but I think that the essential idea is it, it see, assumes we have some kind of a free will, if you like. Do we have a choice about whether to be angry? The Dalai Lama seems to be telling us we have a choice about this. You said a little bit about it in the talk, but I think the question suggests that we're very sceptical about that idea. How do you have a choice about anger? It's, it's visceral. It's <laughs> immediate. Yes. Thank you for this question. And I didn't talk about this tonight, and I just get a chance to advertise the general view on the emotions I have. There is a view of the emotions that I'm familiar with, and it is the view that the emotions are like reflexes, like your knee jerk when you go to the doctor to check uh, whatever the doctors are checking, I guess your uh, thyroid or your uh, nervous system, uh, that they're uh, ballistic, that they just fire. It's like a light hits your pupils and your pupils expand or darkness and they contract or expand. Now, those things are what in psychology or cognitive science we call cognitively impenetrable. You just can't, you can't will that your knee wound jerk if the doctor hits it right. You can't wish that you, if you hit your funny bone, it doesn't feel the way a funny bone feels, and you can't control whether your eyes blink or not. I think that is an entirely implausible myth about emotions. And, and this is where I go to the sort of cultural alternatives. First of all, if you, every single culture teaches children which sort of things they ought to be, for example, angry about, what intensity of anger they ought to feel when something happens such that it's an angry making thing and what actions they should take. So we see this easily in the differences between, for example, American and Japanese populations. These are clearly learned habits. Emotions are learned habits, I think, for the, by and large. They're sure there's an underlying psychobiology that was probably delivered to us by evolution that makes all the emotions, the ones, the basic ones, especially being adaptations in the past. But I think that we expect emotions to be under voluntary control. Parents spend a lot of time telling their children not to be so mad or not to be so sad or not to be so scared. And children do learn these things. However, there's two different questions. One is what I've said so far might make you just think this. Emotions are malleable they're normative and they're scripted. And how they're normed and scripted is variable across cultures. But if I'm raised in a culture, it may just be impossible for me to get out of those norms and scripts. 
In other words, it's not because they're ballistic in the biological sense. It's just that I'm well trained in the way my culture does, for example, anger or shame. Now, in the Dalai Lama's case, um, I think he is expecting, he's giving an account of how were you to be raised as a Buddhist who, is, who has learned to think that anger um, is among the most destructive emotions, the same way a, a Stoic might. And in addition, you think, as Buddhists do with a background metaphysics that involves everything depending on everything else, then you also won't think Hitler is as, and this goes back to your first question, Julian, he's not individually responsible on certain Buddhist views. I'm not defending this because he is a locus of the way the universe is unfolding that is a terrible disaster, possibly a genetic, historical, familial, neurological disaster. Um, and we should have compassion and love for him. And we should stop him from perpetrating the evils that he's perpetrating. But yes, I think there's a sense in which I think the emotions are under voluntary control. They are not, um, and they're under social, structural, and individual control to much greater degree than we think. Just a quick follow-up on that. Um, social, structural, personal. I wonder if you have any views about the weightings of that. Because, I mean, for instance, I mean, you mentioned the Stoics, and the Stoics are very much kind of the view that, you know, your, it's your personal control, it's mastery of yourself, and you can do this even in a society where everyone else is mad. But um, at the same time, you know, the evidence doesn't seem to it worked very well. <laughs> Seneca um, nightly tried to sort of like reflect on his anger to improve, and, he, and yet he, as he reports, he was constantly getting angry, angered by what to him were ultimately uh, trivial things. If you're going to bring about these changes, I mean, is the most powerful lever the social? Do you have to change the social norm? And if you can't do that, is it is it actually really difficult to do it just as an individual? Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the Stoics sometimes say, as I recall, you could do this yourself if you're just a well-developed Stoic. But then again, I think the Stoics also said, wouldn't the world be best if we all lived with only Stoics? Because that would make it a lot easier. And that, that certainly seems right. That's a very helpful question. I mean, I don't know what I want to say about the relative possibilities. You know, we live in a very uh, uh, therapeutic cultures. Uh, many people have noticed this. I mean, we're just, uh, there's all kinds of self-help advice available, you know, everywhere. People see therapists, people uh, take uh, medications. So we're always trying to leverage ourselves in interesting ways. Um, the uh, whether those ways work or not, I don't know. I know some things like anger management training has disastrous effects, at least as it's practiced mostly in America, where people are taught to take out their anger on suitable objects like punching bags or pillows instead of on their spouse. It doesn't have much success. Now, are there other techniques to control your emotions that might work personally if you're disposed to do so? I don't really know enough about it. Certainly in traditions like the Confucian tradition that emphasize self-work and self-cultivation, you should notice about yourself that you have certain tendencies which are undermining your happiness, your well-being, uh, your relations with other people, and you should work on them. So there are traditions which just have more of that aspect of self-cultivation. What I'm actually rooting for in my book is something like, although this is embarrassing to say it, a sort of a social trend where people start to think, number one, 
emotions are pretty malleable and culturally diverse. And you can look at that, you can find that out by just reading the anthropology, the cultural psychology, and the cross-cultural philosophy of the emotions. They're constructed in wildly different ways in different places, and they have wildly different statuses in different places, as good or bad. As in the case of, for example, shame has extraordinarily good status across most cultures, but not in the Anglophone world, not in many places in the North Atlantic. Um, given that, you could create a social movement that said, ah, if emotions are changeable and we see how they're changeable by looking at other cultures and contrasting ourselves, then there could be social movements to raise the kids in different ways, something like that. I think my sort of anger management strategy is actually to do with uh, changing some of the uh, biological conditions of it. I don't get too hungry and tired. I think that kind of works quite well. Years and years ago, I started to use a, uh, I wasn't particularly prone. I don't drive, I bike to work like many British people, so I don't uh, get in traffic jams. But I did notice that I would get impatient. Whenever I got impatient, I started to say to myself, I think it's a stoic, it sounds like a stoic uh, saying, be indifferent to indifferent things. And that really helped a lot um, because many, many things just don't matter as much as ego thinks they matter. And that helps, at least in my own case, privately and therapeutically to make my own tendencies towards irritation evaporate. Okay, that's great. So we've got another question here from Crystal Haug. And again, we, we take the questions as kind of inspirations for reflections. Um, and the, 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 just this real question is, you've got these four types of anger. And I guess, you know, are they, how separate are they really? Um, are they completely separable from one another? And in particular, Crystal is interesting about, interesting whether righteous anger can really be separated from those other less helpful um, versions. The way I think about this argument is something like this. So if you just uh, pass pain to another person because they hurt you and you're going to zap them right back with no higher purpose, I think that that's not good. Um, I, I avoided saying it was morally blamable earlier, just but it's not good. If you also, uh, the second kind, if you um, ventilate and you're unhappy and you just uh, make other people unhappy, that's also not good. It's, uh, it's kind of a sloppy permissiveness about making the atmospherics of the world worse for other people. Now, righteous anger is interesting, and this may be exactly what the question is getting at, because usually righteous anger does hurt people. Anti-racist anger, uh, Black Lives Matter anger, say, does respond to uh, and uh, point out uh, certain kind of racist attitudes, racist practices, etc., that are going on. So people will be hurt. So I acknowledge that. But what one should do, and here I would even go, I'd go to something like um, our uh, American hero, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. King uh, thought, of course, that righteous anger would require economic redistribution, the end of all kinds of uh, political and economic practices that were inherently and structurally racist. And that demanding those would, of course, hurt people whose interests were aligned with keeping those practices in place. Um, he would often ask, and this, he did this from, of course, a Christian point of view, but he also mentions Socrates, Jesus, and Gandhi as influences. He would ask people to purify their souls as much as possible from desires for revenge and passing pain. You would know going in, you will create some pain. 
So I call it in philosophy talk, a doctrine of double effect. If your aim is to change the sexist, racist, awful practices, and you've worked to um, cleanse yourself of gratuitous desires to see the other person suffer the object of, the, of these policies, um, then that's about as good as you can get. So it's a messy world and anger will hurt people. So my call there is again for a kind of a purification of self as far as you can get. But the aim of plausible criteria for worthy righteous anger is that it really be ameliorative, that it, that is intended and thought through as something that will make the other better and will end grievously unjust social practices. I, I think that when we're talking about this, for example, the, the Dalai Lama, one might assume that the ideal is is really the kind of thing that Dalai Lama is hoping for, a world without anger, without all these kind of negative emotions at all. And, uh, okay, so we don't think that's entirely realistic, so we want to kind of manage them in, in some way. But uh, the alternative view, the, sort of the, the Aristotelian view, is that, no, the ideal is not, to ha- not have these emotions, you know, so that the famous quote where Aristotle says, what we need is to be angry for the right reasons at the right time, at the right people, to the right degree, and so forth. And I'm just wondering, you know, I think, is it is it a cultural bias that a lot of people think that somehow we would be, you know, less than fully human if we were to sort of, like, contain these emotions too much and actually we sort of like we we warm more to them. we don't warm to people who are just raging psychopaths or anything but we don't really warm to people who are just never emotionally perturbed either um in, in a sense that kind of little grit of emotion even negative emotion is kind of humanizing is there some truth in that or is that just a a, a, a cultural bias a way in which we justify our excesses to ourselves so well, several different things. I think there's an invitation to really think about this in a in a way that I am wanting us to think about it. So, so let's just take the um, the basic. It seems a plausible truth that uh, Mother Nature did gift us with certain basic emotions, and some that, if they're not basic, are nearby. You know, the usual uh, list that psychologists give of at least the ones that are expressed facially and. Therefore, we communicate. There's, for purposes of communicating to other people, things are, I believe, fear, anger, disgust, contempt, surprise, happy, sad. If that's seven, then I got the list. Those are the ones that are f- expressed facially. Then there are, of course, the ones that might be basic and are not expressed facially, like jealousy, envy, Shame. Shame may be not facial, but it might be bodily, um, involved making yourself more diminutive in relation to some other people. So there's lots of evidence that we are uh, not rat- entirely rational animals. We're affective, embodied, rational creatures. Is there any moment in a human's life, in at least my life, where I wasn't in some either mood or emotion or another? I'd say not for me. I mean, I've been around a while. So uh, we're emotional through and through. And the emotions obviously uh, evolved because they did, at least in the ancient past, serve certain purposes. That said, though, they are, uh, which ones are emphasized and what they look like is highly culturally specific. So, for example, just take something not of the two emotions I talked about today, happiness. So Jeannie Tsai of Stanford, a psychologist, has done this fantastic work where she looks at 
um, sort of ideal emotional selves from the point of view of the top 10 Amazon books for children, you know, across countries, Taipei, Hong Kong, uh, in Malaysia, in Europe, and so on and so forth. And what she finds uh, reliably is that in children's books in, for example, Taiwan, where Jeannie's from, the uh, uh, children are exposed to what's called a low arousal positive face. It's a serene and calm face. American children's books are unique and distinctive, but possibly similar to UK books, I don't know, insofar as the face, the preferred happy face, is a high arousal positive face. It's a sort of a real happy, happy, joy, joy kind of smiley face. She also notices that in children's books in America are unique, at least among the ones she studies, in that American children's books, anger is modeled as an appropriate response to frustration. So first point, I agree totally that we would not want people to be non-emotional. I don't want that. Um, I'm not even sure if Stoics wanted that, but maybe they did. But I don't want, I can't imagine a world like that. But we could imagine emphasizing or de-emphasizing or adjusting culturally, first pass, emotions that are just not as good for us as, or as natural for us as we think. That is, they don't, again, they don't fire ballistically. They're not like reflexes. You learn them in a particular cultural context, sometimes in a particular sort of ethnic group growing up. Different people have different ways of expressing things like anger and shame. I mean, I guess that would be my first pass answer. These are partly cultural. Of course, there are psychobiological underpinnings to them too. And they did do some work. The question is, how much work, good work, are, do the emotions do for a particular society, a particular culture, a particular subculture at any given time? My observation, at least most people I ask, you're younger than me, Julian, most people in my age group have, who I asked about this agree with me that they never lived in angrier times and the anger doesn't seem to be very productive. The kind of cultural change you're after, I can kind of very much go for it, but I, I wonder whether we, we're up against something really quite big here, which is that for, for some time now, there's been a kind of received wisdom that emotions need to be expressed, they need to be got out there, and that any, any kind of suggestion that we need to be controlling them is, is potentially dangerous, and it'll give you cancer or something like that. There, there's quite a lot of sort of folk psychology which is again, running against this, isn't there? So I remember, I think it was in the 60s when I was still a student, there was something they called primal scream therapy that came out. It was during a general time in which sort of we were all thinking, let, let it all hang out, love the one you're with, uh, all those things, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Um, and we thought that uh, expression was liberation and that emotional uh, liberation allowed you to do whatever you want. So there are all kinds of evidences of this, Julian. You're right. And people say it will give you cancer. It'll give you. Uh, you'll be repressed. It'll come out in weird ways. And neurosis goes back to the Freudian views. And I think that um, I think that view just leads to a certain kind of, as I say, sort of sloppy expression of ego. And it really doesn't work. And it comes out also in the following ways, where people will say things like this when they get, say, angry at another person. They'll say things like, well, I'm entitled to my feelings. And I guess one response to that is, well, you're entitled to your feelings, but um, expressing them, it's not clear that the culture should be sort of so prepared to give you permissions. It's not even clear what good that is doing. I know it was a fad, part of a zeitgeist, but let's reconsider that again. And that's sort of part of what I'm asking us to reconsider. 
can see. But you're right. There are huge cultural forces here on the side of ventilationism, expressing your emotions, getting your negative emotions out, even among people who you love. I call upon the audience to question, do you think that reliably does good if you are uh, in a world that is like that? So Suzanne Burry has been waiting a while for her question. Um, she thinks it's a very interesting one because she says, I agree that willful shaming, especially of children, is a horrible practice, but internalized and mature shame is valuable. But how can the latter develop if we refuse to engage in, in the former? So I think the idea here is that in order to sort of like have these sort of beneficial controlled versions, you know, you've got to instill it in people. And that requires you to do these quite horrible finger pointy yeah. Shaming yeah. things. Now, that's a wonderful question. Yeah, because my view, of course, Suzanne gets, is that shaming and humiliation are terrible. No one should ever do that. And it's terrible to make people feel that they're an unworthy uh, being. Well, when I think, when I've thought about this, um, I think that, for example, think about ordinary child practices. Here, I'm, I think I'm reminiscing correctly about my own childhood. And I came from a very large family. My parents said either to me or to siblings at some time or other things like, if you're not sharing toys, they say, you should share your toys. And then you don't share toys again. And they might say something like, you should be ashamed of yourself for not sharing your toys. Now, I understood that not to be an invitation. I, I didn't feel as if I was being shamed. I actually felt like, as this is the data on Japanese mothers, for example. I felt that my mother was expressing disappointment in me. She wasn't shaming or humiliating me, but she was using the word shame to indicate to me that there were in the domain of playing with my siblings, I need to share things. Um, so I, that, that's the kind of entry level example, because I think usually when parents say you ought not to do such and so, or you ought to feel bad about such and so, even when they use words like shame or guilt uh, about them, they're usually pointing to quite specific things that you're not doing. Like you hit your sister, you shouldn't do that. At that point, your parents have told you a norm. Uh, they've told you, they may even tell you consequences, like you must go to your room, but they're not shaming and humiliating you as a human being. So that's my kind of idea about this, that it doesn't require the shaming and humiliation aspects of it. Shaming and humiliation, as I say, are almost always bad. And they're bad for reasons such as no human being is worth being I mean, it's such, it's such a severe way of, of passing pain, and especially, as the question asks, in the child's case, the child doesn't deserve it. It's just learning about the moral and social universe, and it has to be introduced in ideally loving ways uh, to the practices that it will eventually learn, oh, yeah, it's much more fun doing the Legos with my sister than hogging all the Legos for myself, as we say it will learn that virtue is its own reward and that there are reasons uh, uh, to share things. And it hasn't been shamed as the person the child is. Well, that's interesting, actually. I'm thinking about you know, what alternative parenting strategies you could have had. And the, the ones that come to mind don't seem better. I mean, one was quite common in my day was, uh, if, you, if you don't stop doing that, I'll bang your heads together, which I think threat of physical violence probably isn't very good modeling. Uh, the other one, of course, is if you don't do that, then you can't you can't have your dot, 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 which turns it just into a kind of a, you know, a, a yeah. self-interested kind of thing. Whereas you should feel ashamed of yourself is alerting them to that 
social dimension. Yeah. Sounds good. Now, John Collega has got a question here, which um, I think, I mean, the thing is, this does touch on things you said. I mean, in a way, the answer, the quick answer to this, based on what you've said, is no. Do modern, does modern schooling and parenting equip people for a modern world? But you, you mentioned a few things. I just wondered if there was anything else about modern parenting styles or schooling educational systems which you think are reinforcing the wrong kind of norms around perhaps even other emotions, not necessarily even anger and shame? Yeah, that's a really uh, good question. I mean, I haven't thought enough about this to be uh, taken uh, very seriously on it. I did write in my book, Geography of Morals, I did at the end of that book talk a little bit about moral education. Um, So I do think uh, this is a general diagnosis about virtues and emotions in school teaching. At least in America, the sort of uh, consensus that in America we're so confused about uh, morality and religion connection. So um, uh, because America has uh, this very strict separation of church and state, we of course don't have any state-sponsored religion, no money goes to it. And I think that uh, because uh, many Americans think that uh, you can't be moral without a religion, it's led to schools not being allowed to do anything in the regard of moral education. Basically, schools are only allowed to do things like, say, you can't bring weapons to school, you can't have sex in school, you can't bring or take drugs in school. Beyond that, I think, unfortunately, schools are considered thought to be interfering with people's liberty if they were to teach certain basic principles about what it means to be a good citizen. I'm told that in American schools, what used to be civics education when I was a boy, where you would learn about the functions of government, at least in things like that, the duties of um, public servants, is now taken over with almost all counseling about how to get into college and things like that. If true, that's a very, very disappointing thing. So um, I do think that we need um, better discussions about how uh, generally to think about teaching, if there is a common morality, how we would teach it in schools and not be embarrassed by doing it uh, because of a consensus that morality is not something uh, that public education is allowed to do. Just a couple of uh, brief things, maybe a bit before we finish up. You know, in your writing, your research, you do cast your net widely. So um, I assume you would have looked quite a lot at social psychology. And I wonder what you make of the, the concern that people have. That, that we, when we try to make informed decisions about what's good for us, and what's natural, we often do look to, you know, what does psychology tell us? And it seems that a lot of, a lot of what psychology is telling us is in fact not about human nature, but the culturally conditioned practices of uh, weirds, or that white educated, whatever it is. Basically, you're talking about white educated uh, uh, Westerners and, and not something else. Um, how concerned are you that this whole field of social psychology is is too often kind of mistaking historical and geographical contingencies for uh, the way the mind works? Fantastic, fantastic, helpful question. So I do think about this pretty much all the time, you know, because I was the boy in college who was encouraged to go on in psychology by my psychology professors and in philosophy by my philosophy professors. So I always had my hand and my eye into the mind sciences. Um, So uh, part of what you're referring to most of the listeners may know, but this very important paper, I believe it was 2009, it might have been 2010, by Joe Henrik et al., which addressed the question, the following question, uh, how nervous should we be about the fact that almost all 
psychological experiments are based on college sophomores in North America and how representative uh, should we expect it to be. And the result was, of course, that uh, it turns out that over 90% of articles published about human psychology were based on North American samples or UK, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea. These are people who they uh, dubbed Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic from those countries. And then they asked the question, how representative are such people? And their answer was, these are the least representative people in the history of humankind. We could go back to, you know, cave people and they'd be more representative. Why? Because uh, reading and writing is only 5,000 years old. Uh, So literacy, richness, democracy is recent and so on and so forth. Being Western is recent. So I think this is very serious time in psychology. And I think almost all the evidence shows that when it comes to social psychology, that all generalizations are entirely local. This does mean that we have to rethink making universal generalizations about human nature from our own case. And I think that is tends to be, Julian, what people do when they say things like, well, look it, this is the way anger is, or this is the way shame is, or this is what shame does, or this is what anger does. I think we tend to, and this is why this new opening horizons in philosophy is so important, we tend to take what is familiar to us, what we know to be the case, and commit roughly what are in statistics called fallacy of small and unrepresentative samples. After all, Americans, you take Americans and all of Europe together, that's about 1 billion people, I think, out of the 8 billion people on Earth. So we're not talking about psychology or social psychology experiments that reflect what most people are like even now. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.